Okay, we're going to look at these five powers. Now, this, this is a set of qualities that we see in this kind of um, collection of 37, sometimes called the Wings to Awakening. And, and it's, it's these lists. So it's, um, let's see if we can get on. The Noble Eightfold Path, the Seven Enlightenment Factors, the Five Powers, the Five Faculties, which happen to be the same exact list, taken from a different perspective. The four... It's the Idipadas, but I can't seem to come up with a translation lately. The basis for psychic power, I think, is what they're really called. And... The Four Noble Truths, the Four Right Efforts. Anyway, you get the idea. This collection of things, and um, the, we're going to look at the five powers. And I and I just recently finished teaching. It was, uh, or maybe we have one more month, one more meeting to go. About eight months on this topic of these five powers, and so this this involves the noble disciple, and we can get a sense for another kind of practice of the noble disciple. So this says in detail, it's on Gutra Nikaya, the numerical discourses number 514. And it says, mendicants, there are these five powers. What five? The powers of faith, energy, mindfulness, Immersion, which is samadhi, and wisdom. And what is the power of faith? It's when a noble disciple has faith in the realized one's awakening. That blessed one is perfected, a fully awakened Buddha, accomplished in knowledge and conduct, holy, knower of the world, Supreme Guide for Those Who Wish to Train, Teacher of Gods and Humans, Awakened, Blessed. This is called the power of faith. So I'm curious, what has it been like for you to chant the Buddha's qualities and the Dhamma and the Sangha's qualities this this week? Has that been really weird, awkward? It's not what you relate to? Yeah, correct. Yeah, monastic retreat is going to be a little different. <laughs> Did you want to say something? Yeah, yeah. How did that go for you? It was fine before today. The first three, I was totally lost the first day. Oh, okay. Kind of lost the second, third, still kind of lost, but today. Okay. Oh, I hope it's useful a little bit. 
if it wasn't useful or comfortable, at least it was short. <laughs> yes, Joyce? Okay, yes? Uh, I found myself, <laughs> when I was walking, sort of chanting the same things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, at first, I, I was kind of in that imposter. I'm like, what am I saying? What are these words? And the first time, and then I'm like, this makes a lot of sense. Like, it oh. kind of sticks with you. And then you have these moments. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what happens in the monastery. You chant a lot of these things over and over and over every day or whatever. And then pretty soon, you know, you're doing something or something comes up and some piece of the chanting comes up and it's a great reminder. And, and a lot of times those are really like chants that have Dhamma teachings in them. Yeah. I was so happy to find the accent marks. Oh, <laughs> yes, to figure out what are they doing, up, down. Yeah, the way it's printed uh, isn't the easiest yeah, but I'm glad. <laughs> yeah. I'll just say I shared for example a little bit, I think, because um, it's so... Yeah, bowing, and oh my gosh, what these people do? really the teachings, and the power of the teachings to, to end suffering, and so I see Buddha as a powerful teacher, mm-hmm. and as, as a human being, right? Um, yeah. Who, as you pointed out yesterday, he died, you I believe you said that. Right? I did say that. So this this part's a little bit, you know, I felt a little disingenuous, a little imposter, which is why I didn't do it today. Because I fine. just thought I don't want to be yeah. making it. I don't like the whole thing really make a thing. I mean, I, I spend inordinate hours every day studying Buddhism, reading the Dharma, um, but not because I see, you know, this sort of mm-hmm. supreme otherness of the Buddha. I don't so, yeah, so just wanted to. You're not alone. To Thank <laughs> you. 
Yeah. So thank you. You're welcome. Somebody else have anything? Yeah, Carolyn. Yeah, without thinking about, like, do I agree with this or not? Just, like, letting that devotion come through. Yeah. Yes? Uh, Bob? Yeah, it's nice energy in there. Yes. Yeah. Today I was thinking, well, what if we just suspend the closing tonight? And I thought, you know, I think we'll miss it. You know, that kind of like, okay, come together. You know, you really kind of say goodnight. <laughs> yeah, so when I started, so I grew up in a, I think I told you, a fundamentalist Christian environment, and the bowing is supposed to be bad. And in fact, the Catholic religion was supposed to be bad. And, um, so, you know, my son became a monk, and I'd go to the monastery, and I'd do what other people did. And I said to Ajahn Pasano once, so he's the abbot, um, when I'm at home, I don't do this, the bowing. And he said to me, well, it's just paying respect to what deserves respect. And I, that sent me on an in inquiry like what is it that deserves respect and yeah of course I'm 100% in (laughs) I love it and um, there's something um, for me that's very helpful in bowing it's like there's something about the ego getting set aside and the self and one of the, it was very inspiring one time because in the monastic um, order, when the Buddha was, was on his deathbed, really, he, one of the things he told the Sangha is that from now on, you don't just call each other friend. I want you to call those who are more senior to you venerable and pay respects to those who are senior to you. You know, he's really laying out, like, how does this continue? How do you have order? And, of course, sometimes that means you're paying, so we bow to, like, our habit. You go to a new monastery, and you go to the shrine. You go, you bow, and then you bow to the most senior monastic there. And... And there are occasions when you're bowing to someone that you really don't respect, but you bow anyway. 
And why would you not respect them? You, you, you know that things are not being done right, right? But you bow anyway. And it's, it's because there's like, you just letting go of that ego. Um, and there's so much more to respect than just this individual. Actually, you're not really bowing to anybody. When someone bows to me, it's not like they're bowing to me. The bowing is really for the person who's bowing. It doesn't have anything to do with that lump of metal or stone or whatever it is. The bowing is for for us. What do we pay respects to? Even the Buddha, after he got enlightened, he said, I don't see anyone I should bow to. Because he had what he had realized was so powerful, but then he bowed to the Dhamma. We should bow to something, but make sure it's that something that you really are in respect of. So that's where that that is, and of course, you know. Um, some kind of ritual or reflection on the Buddha Dhamma Sangha is really integral to this noble disciple business. You know, like the faith, and like I said early on, you might think of it as the faith in the awakened mind, the faith in the truth of the way things are, the faith in, you know, the purity, the virtue which is what the Sangha should be doing. That's what we represent, living in a way that's as pure as you can. And so that faith is, you know, like this is what this, this um, confidence that comes up in a person when they actually realize enough of the truth of the Dhamma, the stream entry experience is said to be that glimpse of Nibbana. You see something you never saw before, something that's so profound and powerful that it changes your life. And then the result, the fruit of that is this complete confidence in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, confidence in the training, the the natural keeping of the of the moral precepts the elimination of doubt the um, giving up of using perfunctory ritual as a way of thinking you're gonna like save yourself the realization that um, this is not a self body feeling, mind, processes. So in that description, I kind of blended two things together. The confidence or the um, the fetters that get dropped are really this idea of the self, the self-view. The inappropriate or unskillful use of rites and rituals as kind of a 
way of saving yourself, and the doubt in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. This idea about the training is something that is is also there, that you want to keep the rules. So this is also a quality of the stream enterer. So I want to just make that clear. The fetters for those first three things, that's what falls away as a result. You can't practice to attain those things. It's not like that's a goal. The practice that you do is to develop the faith, really develop the qualities we're going to talk about here, and some of those other things we've talked about this week. And then the result of that experience are those fetters dropping away. So that faith, you know, how does that get developed in your life, in your practice? And the second one is the power of energy. And we've seen, uh, we saw the Buddha define energy in a previous sutta where the energy was, you know, to... um, It's, I guess, pretty similar. It's when the noble disciple lives with energy roused up for giving up unskillful qualities and embracing skillful qualities. They're strong, staunchly vigorous, not slacking off when it comes to developing skillful qualities. And that's very similar to what we saw in a previous sutta, you know, where that four powers, the wisdom to know what's skillful and unskillful, and the energy to really to really work on it. And what's the power of mindfulness? Well, all of us here have heard tons about mindfulness. (laughs) But this definition is a little bit different than what we're usually used to. Here the Buddha talks about they have the utmost mindfulness and alertness and can remember and recall what was said and done a long time ago. So both the ability to remember what happened in the past is one way that mindfulness or sati, that's one definition of sati. And the other one is the presence, um, the clarity in the moment. And what's the power of immersion or samadhi? And here it's describing the four jhanas, the four levels of immersion. And the first one, this is standard and shows up again and again and again and again in the texts. And as I said the other day, these descriptions of jhana are really descriptive. And if we try to like make this happen in our meditation, it's probably not going to go very well. But if we just use that as a guidepost and kind of see, oh, this is kind of how meditation progresses. And so it's when a noble disciple, quite secluded from sensual pleasure, so you're, you're in your hut or your room or in the hall, and you're closing the sense doors, and you're letting go of desire. Secluded from unskillful qualities, you're calming the mind, those memories, those other things, you're dismissing them, you're turning your attention to your meditation object, 
and you're letting go of the unskillful qualities and you enter and remain in this state of mind where you feel PT arise, so spiritual energy, however that comes through for you. And it's, it's this bliss or sukha happiness that comes from that turning inwards, born of seclusion. And you're placing the mind and keeping it connected. You're intentionally putting your mind on a meditation object and you're keeping it there. And that's what's happening in the first jhana. And then we have the second one where you don't, you're so absorbed that you don't need to keep pushing your mind to be on an object. It's kind of like, at least this is the way it seems to me, it's kind of like the process takes over and you don't have to be like, okay, I'm watching my breath or whatever. The placing of the mind and keeping it connected are stilled. And then one enters and remains in this second absorption, which has rapture and bliss born of immersion. So it's the same. It's that piti and sukha again. But it's this time, it's right, you're deep in the meditation and it's got that beautiful, beautiful, blissful feeling. With internal clarity and mind at one, so the mind is singular, it's not um, off on different directions, it's one-pointed, they might say, it's mind at one without placing the mind and keeping it connected. So your, your focus is right there on what the experience is. Still might be on the breath, but you're not trying. And then the second part of this is the third, third and fourth. So the fading away of rapture, this is in the third part, so that um, feeling of PT, this can be quite um, vigorous feeling, kind of like there can be a lot of sensation, and that calms down. And what's still there is the sukha, the um, happiness or pleasant feeling. So there's the fading away of the rapture of the strong um, spiritual energy, and they enter and remain in the third absorption where they meditate with equanimity, mindful and aware, personally experiencing the bliss of which the noble ones declare, equanimous and mindful, one meditates in bliss. So it's a deeper level. You'll notice each, each level you're letting go of something. First you let go of that, placing the mind, keeping it connected, and then you let go of the, the rapture that goes away, and gradually things fall away, and you're going deeper into meditation. And there's this equanimity. And mindfulness is there throughout. You're clear, you're present. There's no fog. You know, sometimes people go into kind of like, I don't know what happened. It was some, Well, that's not real absorption. So the fourth one, giving up pleasure and pain. So you can get to a point where you don't feel pain. You, you might have a kind of 
ongoing backache. Sometimes in the monastery you have to work really hard and you might have some pain, but if you can go deep enough in meditation, it's gone. And giving up pleasure and pain and ending ending former happiness and sadness, you've already, like, the, the emotional side has already been calmed quite a while ago. And you, they enter and remain in the fourth absorption without pleasure or pain, with pure equanimity and mindfulness. This is very still. Yeah, Micah? A couple questions. First, you know, when you mentioned the other night, Yeah, I would say you never employ this. This is a description of what happens. No, not really. So the question was, when I was um, practicing with getting dental work done without um, anesthetic, was I employing this kind of uh, approach? Was I bringing myself into that state? And the answer was, um, no, I wasn't trying to do that. I wasn't trying to do anything except relax. So I was relaxing my toes, and then I, I did go into altered state. One time I forgot whether I drove to the dentist or I walked. <laughs> kind of walked home and left my car there. I was like, that wasn't the most grounded meditation ever. But <laughs> but anyhow, yeah, the, the, there, there you can... When you put your attention on your meditation object and you're really present with it and everything else starts to fall away, then these things will happen or they may happen. But you're not like employing this as a method. And I think this is one of the things that can, this one is, one, is a misunderstanding that I think often can be a problem for meditators. And they think we're going to make this happen. And instead, you just put your attention, have mindfulness there, and put your attention on your meditation object, and you start to let go of everything else. I mean, in a way, you can kind of, like, you know, you're going to just turn your attention away from sense input and make this quiet, you know, you have as much quiet as you can, but you don't have to have quiet. And just turn the mind inwards. So it's so I I just want to say yeah there are some things you just do but all I did was I closed my eyes. I put my attention on my toes and then worked up on my feet on my legs all the way up my body relaxing it and going around and doing it again. But I already had a lot of meditation practice under my belt and could you know. New, so there's something when you practice meditation and you start to go into deeper states, it's a path that your mind learns. And it's like, you know, the first time you drive to some distant location, it feels like it takes forever. <laughs> and then, if that's some place you want to visit often, you keep going, and, and then it seems like it's much like easier, somehow way less trouble. 
And I think that's how it happens with meditation too. You don't have to be aware of sound to be mindful okay. or aware of, I mean, it, mindfulness, you, it depends on what you're aware of. And we're mindful of something. So there can be a meditation like that where you just, you know, are mindful of the things that are coming through the sense doors. Or you can, like, turn away from all that, turn inwards and be mindful of the inner state. You're mindful, you're present. And that's where you're going to get into deeper absorption. It seems like, like a different it's different. Thing. It's a different approach. Yeah. And or, like when you're in this state, are you also, oh, I'm aware that I'm in this state, or you're just completely absorbed? You're aware. Now, um, Ajahn Brahm gives some really good descriptions of the jhanas, and he'll say you don't, you're not evaluating. You know, the thinking mind goes still. And so when you come out, you know exactly what happened. You're aware the whole time, bright, present. But you're not like thinking, oh, I'm at this point. As soon as you think, oh, there's something interesting happening, <laughs> you're at, it's ended. Yeah, usually. Carolyn? Sometimes people just don't have enough meditation experience themselves to be giving that kind of advice. I mean, we definitely, the Buddha talked about the mind becoming still. And, yeah, I don't, I don't think there's anything to be afraid of in there. Yeah. I mean, I've heard people, people will feel energy. They'll feel like the PT can be felt that way. And I've heard people talk about it, and then someone will say, oh, but that's just energy, just ignore it. And that's not what the Buddha said. He said, let it permeate your whole body. Like, he gives these these similes. Like, you let the PT permeate your, permeate your whole body the way if you, if someone who, they called him a bath man, like, I guess he's at the, at the local place where people bathe with some soap powder and he he drips water in there and he works his soap powder so that it's completely saturated but it doesn't drip and he says that's the way the body can be infused with PT so you feel it somewhere you feel it in your hands or you feel it on your top of your head or around your face or something and this is already an indication of samadhi and then you just let that Expand, grow, and it, and you can get to that place where your whole body is like this, immersed, and then your body parts start to disappear. You can't feel them. You don't know how your hands are laying. You don't, you can't, you you don't know any where any of that is, and is blissful. It's like pure energy. 
and maybe sometimes a sound will break through and it'll just make you go, <laughs> it just kind of vibrates through that energy. So this is all normal stuff. This is all nat- normal stuff for meditators. Yeah. Yeah, so it's hard because PT and Sukha are the Pali words here, and they get, they have the definitions in the dictionary look so similar, you know, like what's rapture, what's bliss, what's pleasure, what's whatever. So the way I think of PT and Sukha is that it's, well, the way I experience it is it's energy. And the way I experience it is as energy. And it's, it's, it may be a vibration, or sometimes it's light. People see light, colors. <coughs> sometimes you can hear a sound in your ears. Ajahn Sumedho would call that the sound of silence, like you can hear this. It's kind of similar to you hold a shell up to your ear. It's this, if you drop into a, kind of a stillness, then you can hear this sound. It's kind of be all, behind all other sounds. In the yoga tradition, they call it the nada sound. Anyhow, as far as I can tell, it's all the same thing. But the PT is usually a more coarse, more, uh, it's not as refined. And it's more, maybe more um, intense a little bit. And then when that fades to sukha, it's, it's more peaceful. So the Buddha says you're letting go of the coarser and you're going to the more refined. And then pretty soon, the, eventually, the sukha also goes away. And you're just left with equanimity. It's so still. So... Pure equanimity and mindfulness. And this is called the power of immersion. So generally when right samadhi is defined, this is the way it's defined. And then, you know, there's a lot of discussion among practitioners and master teachers about how much of this happens, how much you need to have this. Um, Famous monk who was a contemporary of Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Buddhadasa, he said, you only need enough samadhi. I said, is that how it was? Samadhi or mindfulness? I don't know. This, is, this metaphor isn't making any sense to me right at the moment. He said you only need enough to be able to put the key in the keyhole. And I don't know. <laughs> I asked Ajahn Gunha, how, how deep does the samadhi need to be? He said, not that deep. So, you know, it's, it's kind of like, well, the Buddha also, in these various places in the sutta, says, okay, someone gets to that first description, first jhana. And then he says, then you come out of it and you realize that it's impermanent. It's through that investigation and realization that it's impermanent that you awaken. But of course, the mind is conditioned by the samadhi. The samadhi calming the mind like that, you're more available to insight arising. You're opening up to deeper reaches of the mind. 
And while you're in that state, insight can arise of various kinds. And then, you know, you come out of it and, of course, you're also able to deal with life so much better. You know, it's like having some insulation around your nerves. Um, Nothing really has the same impact, at least for a while. So the power of immersion, also part of the experience of the noble disciple. And what's the power of wisdom? It's when a noble disciple is wise. They have the wisdom of arising and passing away. So that's kind of what I was saying about noticing the state of the jhana passing away. Like the, all these states, like <clears throat> loving kindness, <coughs> excuse me, compassion, appreciative joy, equanimity, they don't last. They come and go. The, these states of meditation, they come and go. Everything, you know, you... When, when we see this arising and passing away, that everything that arises ceases. When that hits at a deep level, our view of things is altered for good. This is the, which is noble, penetrative, just a minute, penetrative, and leads to the complete ending of suffering. This is called the power of wisdom. Who was that? Yes, Donna. Yeah, I was just, I could, I'm so happy that we're reading this now because um, realizing that those states arise and pass away is, is so important because the, the wanting to get back there again. You can't go back. It does. What a wonderful, yeah. yeah, you can't go back. Um, when we try to recapture what happened before, it doesn't work. We have to go forward. We can learn how to put in the causes and conditions that make these things more possible. And we get more skilled at being able to do that. And like I said, the mind gets accustomed to going into these places, and then it's easier. But we also can come across a period of time when you can't do it. And there's a sutta where this monk is dying, basically, and he's worried because he can't go into samadhi now. And he's worried that he's losing ground. And the Buddha comes to him and he says, well, those who feel like samadhi is really the practice, they'll get worried about this. But it's, that's just part of it. That's, you're, not, you're not losing anything. And so it's like, you know, we have to really keep the big picture in mind and know in the heart where we're at and, and be careful not to overestimate where we're at because that can really hold us back. And we run into people with that kind of problem a lot. I think they've entered the stream, but they really demonstrate continually that they don't understand the Dhamma or they don't keep precepts, or they're confused about the precepts. That's just not true of a stream enterer. There's other hints. <laughs> and then it's important, it's important to just have that humility that, you know, I don't want to think I'm further than I am. 
I want to know what the truth is so I can really make progress. Well, it's after nine. My apologies for that. I don't care, though. (laughs) We could go all night. That's all right. (laughs) So um, if you're up for it, we'll go to the Dhamma Hall and close. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.